Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Janice Joplin's biographer, Holly George Warren, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon Podcasts presents, from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaming as she brings you The Devil's Music. Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to The Devil's Music Podcast, all about that sinful rock and roll. It's the beat. I know what it does to you. Rock and roll and witchcraft have been two concurrent themes in my life since the age of 12. So that's how I got the idea to do this, to explore two of my favorite things especially since Whiskers on Kittens doesn't really translate into a podcast. Um, in case you don't know me, I'm a rock and roll witch. I'm a best-selling writer. I was one of the first punks in Los Angeles with a fanzine called Lobotomy, and I was an active part of that mid-to-late 70s punk scene that I helped create. I went on to book all sorts of clubs and venues in LA, including two of the most seminal punk clubs, Raji's and Cathay de Grand. Um, I lived in a very famous punk rock house called Disgraceland. Legendary, I might add. I'm a painter. I'm an actor. I've been a professional dancer for probably many years, longer than some of you have been alive. I'm still ticking and still ticking lickings. Some of you might know me some of you might not have heard of me, and some of you may have heard of me in the ahem, biblical sense. But we're here to have fun, and I'm glad you're joining me. Mwah.
Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to The Devil's Music. Today, my guest is one of my oldest and dearest friends. You may not know how wild she is until you hear this, but you will definitely know her images. She's one of rock and roll's most famous photographers. She's she shot everybody you could think of, from the Cramps, Blondie, The Damned, The Germs, Bob Dylan, Bowie, Iggy, and she's also got some really iconic photos of early Joan Jett. We used to do a fanzine together in the 70s called Lobotomy, the Brainless Magazine. And um, man, the stories we could tell that, that, <laughs> that happened from a crazy, tiny little Xerox stapled together fanzine was insane. Teresa and I have been partners in crime for decades, cough, cough, cough. <laughs> we're, we're, both, we're both wearing granny panties to, <laughs> to, to do this podcast. Aren't you jealous that you can't see them? You can purchase them on our OnlyFans. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> but anyway, that that was the really um that was the corporate intro for my wonderful friend Teresa Gary. <laughs> Hi, Hoity. I call Hi. Her you know, I received my Kid Congo Powers record in the mail today, and on the back of the box, he wrote, "Thanks, Hoity." <laughs> The United States Postal Service had no idea what to make of it. Yeah, media mail or thanks, Hoity. Okay, for anyone that's listening, like Teresa always, even though she was like down in the depths of punk rock insanity with all the rest of us, I mean, really like crawling through the trenches, she always has a very educated, like um, not put on, but kind of quasi British pronunciation. And when she says white, she used to say, White. So I start, I don't even know how I started calling her Hoity, but that's that's been her name to me for years. I can't even think of her as Teresa or as Punk Turns 30, which is her fantastic website. You should check out for all sorts of her photos and um, links to buy her, her amazing photo books and also all of her insane stories, which she published on punkturns30.com, even though now Punk is like we're we're old and punk is like definitely not thirty anymore. I I can't even count how old it is because I'm senile. But um, <laughs> let's talk about um, our early days of how we met. I think we met in 1976. Is that true? I think so. I think was it in my dorm at UCLA when I booked the quick to play uh, casino night. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's that's right. The quick, you guys listening. The quick was um, Kim Fowley, Kim Fowley's boy band project, while the Runaways was his girl band project, and um, he didn't put the quick together though. They were put together by Stephen Hofstetter, who was a genius, and um, their singer and Danny and their bassist Ian went on to write the Friends theme theme song. If any of you give a fuck about that, but. Um, <laughs> You can tell I don't. <laughs> well, you know, um, uh, but Stephen Huffstetter also was like the brain behind the Dickie songs and a lot of Red Cross stuff. And he was in the Cruzados, which was um, right, which was Tito's band after the Plugs, Tito Lariva's band. Yeah, Steve Steve Huffstetter is an unsung hero of LA rock and roll. I gotta say. Um, yeah. 
So when, when we met, we just immediately became friends and started hanging out. I mean, like, I don't remember how, how a lot of us met, you know, like we just all, I think we all just saw each other at, at different shows and stuff, but then it got to the point where we're all seeing each other like every night. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's like gaydar, except it was punk dar. <laughs> punk dar. Punk Darth Vader. <laughs> Darth Vader. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because, you know, I, um, I went to UCLA. I started there in uh, the winter of 75 into the winter of 76. And at that same time, Star Wars was being made. And a lot of um, the people that nowadays would be, you know, like gamer cartoon kids who were going to film school doing weird animation got drafted by um, the the George Lucas camp to um, make all those little creatures. My my only Star Wars cred is um, snorting tons of coke at the Starwood with Mark Hamill right after Star Wars came out. I've and, never seen it. And, and it was backstage at a quick concert. <laughs> right. And remember, we always used to say how Mark Hamill and Steve Allen from 2020 could be separated at birth. Oh yeah, they both had that Santa Monica hustler look with like white fresh <laughs> denim jeans and like a semi bowl cut a la Peter Tork, not yet the Ramones, because the Ramones were not on our radar yet. But yeah, <laughs> but I mean that I mean that in the best way. Mark, if you happen to be listening to this, hi, I haven't talked to you in like 50 years, but love ya. Mean it now. <laughs> um anyway, um so in 1978, Teresa and I started Lobotomy Magazine, but before that, she was already taking all sorts of photos too, like of, of all the insanity that was going on in the legal and illegal clubs in LA. So um, like, what was like, like I know that um, that you were taking pictures at that, at that, um, Bel Air Sands Hotel, which used to house K Rock. K Rock used to be like a pirate radio station, and it was in this hotel. And then um, Kim Fowley put on a party. I think it was in association with K Rock, or they allowed it in their suites with Venus and the Razor Blades. It was their debut performance, and and um, Blondie came to it. What, what year was that? Was that seventy seven? I think it was seventy seven. That's where that photo of you and Debbie, where you both look like. Well, she's got the big aviator shades on and you have that cashmere pinup sweater girl uh, yeah. top on. That's where that's from. And Kim Sally was there and like everyone who was anyone in the rock scene was there, which, which in those days, everyone who was anyone didn't really mean anything because we all knew each other. But nowadays, when you think of who, who came to events, like Kim Fowley and Rodney Bingenheimer were ubiquitous at like every event. But there was also people that would later get wildly famous, like 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 Debbie, who was just like un, you know had had only barely just been signed and released the first album. I know, like Debbie and Chris just went everywhere because they you know they liked music and they wanted to check out the scene and um, and Chris Stein, for those of you listening, um, the guitar player and and co-founder with Debbie Harry of Blondie. Um, you know, he went to, he studied at a school of visual arts and he is a fantastic photographer and he was around at the same time taking pictures too. 
And now if you like follow him on Instagram or Twitter, he posts pictures from back in the day and they're really fantastic. And I remember so many times where I was confused by my camera or, or you know, got stuck with me. He helped me out and he showed me, you know, tricks of the trade. So yeah, I, he, he was great. He took, he took um, pictures of me and Jeffrey Lee Pierce and Joan Jett in the parking lot at um, the Tropicana Motel, which was like the LA answer to the Chelsea Hotel. And Blondie was staying there. But I didn't know that like um, my little witchy best friend, um, when we were both outcasts in junior high, she, she was looking through Chris's photos one day and said, hey, that's pleasant. And, and they're married. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> for, for like decades. Really? <laughs> yeah, it, was, it blew my fucking mind. <laughs> But, There's um, just some of the weirdest coincidences. I know. The Tropic, so the Tropicana um, was like, that's where Teresa and I conducted all of our lobotomy interviews. And the, the very first issue of lobotomy had the mumps on the cover featuring Lance Loud, gay icon, and just New York um, club icon. And um, Teresa took that picture. But I think that the... Um, the wildest, I, I, this was one of the early interviews that we did. We did interviews with everybody you could think of because they, it was their first time to LA. So we're going to talk about um, doing cramps interview and um, photo shoot at the Tropicana and also Blondie stuff, um, which started at the Tropicana, but ended at your house, the other lobotomy apartment. Um, so lobotomy, we always were putting it together when we were drunk. Teresa was probably shooting it when she was drunk. I mean, Kid Congo was a writer. Jeffrey Lee Pierce was a writer. We used to just, we made Joan Jett, like after the Runaways first tour, we made her um, write an article for it. And she said she didn't know how to write or type. And I said, just talk and I'll, I'll, I'll write it down for you. <laughs> but the, the best one was when we had this wild party at Teresa's apartment for, for Blondie. Was this when they were when Blondie was playing with the Ramones for a week, opening for the Ramones at the Whiskey, or was it before that? Uh, I think it was the week that they played with the Runaways. It was like two months after the Ramones. Oh, okay. At, also at the Whiskey, though. Also right? at the Whiskey, yeah. It was with the Runaways. And um, that was at the Lobotomy apartment on Franklin with the floor-to-ceiling windows. Yeah, so everyone could enjoy our parties, <laughs> audio, <laughs> audio and visual. <laughs> well, I mean, th so many d distinct things happened at that party um, that you could do an entire soap opera about that one night. That party could be a Netflix miniseries. That's but the, right. The part That's that right. I remember it's... was like everyone in the whole place was like on ludes. Including, including most of Blondie, and I know <laughs> and, and I was. We were all in the bathroom at the same time. Everybody from Blondie and me and Teresa with a little <laughs> like Radio Shack cassette recorder, like loaded out of our minds with people pounding on the bathroom door, doing, trying to do an interview. <laughs> I know your tape, it was like, knock, knock, knock. I have to pee. And it's like, no, <laughs> we're not done yet. <laughs> but that was like um 
like Debbie was, Debbie was so high. She was, she was just, she was saying, she was just blurting out stuff. Like, I think there needs to be more brightly colored toilet paper. Remember? And, right. And then um, we got Clem and Jimmy to sing the roller songs. Oh yeah. Cause they were both obsessed with the Bay City Rollers. That was and the Bay Clem City Rollers were coming to, they were on tour. Cause I remember what may have started it all off as I, um, we may have been singing going to see the rollers and i would say well i got tickets to see the rollers at a long beach arena <laughs> but then um when uh, michael sticker the dead boys roadie was was um he had just been put into jail because he he stabbed the guy that like attacked johnny blitz and he got caught so michael sticker was in 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 rikers island and um during the whole interview, Chris was yelling that he was going to start a band called Smash Face and the Punk Face Smashers. And, and, and in between, like, um, in, in between, like, talking about, like, when Blondie was recording their next record, Chris would be going, um, stick it on, got no eyes to see, Michael, stick it eyes. <laughs> what, what? What? Um, oh wait, I think we have to take a, a musical break. So let's listen to some Blondie from the first album. I saw you standing on the corner. You look so big and fine. I really wanted to go out with you. So when you smiled, I laid my heart on the line. Here we are back. Um, what else do you remember about that party? Tell, tell, tell the audience some of the other soap opera issues that were happening there. Like who was there to begin with? Like besides Blondie, um, Alice Bag, the Germs. Alice Bag, the Germs. Uh, Belinda. That goes without saying, you know. Um, yeah, the go-go's were everywhere in those days. <laughs> Um, that was about the time where Belinda and Lorna moved in with me because they, um, you know, they had been driving to Hollywood every night from Thousand Oaks where they lived. And they finally got an apartment on Holloway Drive. That everyone and, just called the germs apartment. Right. You know, it was there. And, and then... Um, that had been about a year after Sal Minio was murdered, and he was murdered in the apartment building parking lot that was next door to the apartment building they lived in. And they, when they were going home, they heard some really weird noises coming out of the parking lot. So they went back to the rainbow parking lot where I saw them and they told me about it. And I said, well, you could just come stay at my apartment. You know, it's like, it's the lobotomy apartment. It belongs to everybody. <laughs> Was, so that, that, was that the night that Salminio got murdered? No, it was like the anniversary of his murder. Oh, wow. How weird. So it was like really, uh, it was on everybody's mind. 
and um yeah and they came and they stayed for um a couple of months until they could you know put the money together to get their apartments at the canterbury and during yeah. that time everybody everybody who was a punk who didn't already have a job got a job at um the la county art museum because the king tut exhibit because oh, yeah. you know we all wore coal eyeliner so yeah <laughs> everybody everybody was just like sort of the check your little badge and pin person that's right i forgot about that like everybody in the punk scene that was a that was a job for like almost everybody for real yeah. before we started all getting cast in in um films like rock and roll high school and valley girl and stuff like that in the in the later in the in like 79 and 80 and stuff well he should talk about up in smoke because that happened oh my god yes <laughs> okay so also in case you guys don't know the Cheech and Chong film up in smoke um that the concert scenes were filmed at the Roxy and everybody in the whole entire LA punk scene and also coming down from San Francisco and up from San Diego was extras for the day. And that was the first time that the germs um, started with the, the Iggy peanut butter tribute. And so Marcy Blaustein and I were enlisted to sneak in the tape recorder that recorded um, Forming, right? For, uh, it wasn't Forming, it's what's the B-side of Forming? Re that that I I pushed the record button on there and Marcy uh handed off the uh jar of peanut butter to to Bobby Pin because we'd smuggled all of these things in our denim jackets. Yeah, the, Bobby Pin wasn't hadn't even changed his name to Darby Crash yet. That's how new the germs were. Uh, here goes. that they had one of those fog machines there that used oil instead of like water vapors and everyone was blowing out like black snot for like three days after yeah, <laughs> yeah. um I think oh, Falcon cookies from new york was supposed to play at that too i can't remember if they played or not because it, once again like everybody was drinking and this was an all day of air so <laughs> god only knows like you know the only person i know the only band i know who was in the whole chaos that ended up on film was the dills oh yeah chip um, chip and tony kinman yeah they ended up in the film and um but like you can you can see uh, like some, some people will always say like you know have you seen this movie or have you seen that movie and don't you always go like i was in that movie like right? <laughs> yeah, have you seen that movie or i was in that movie or yeah i had something to do with that movie yeah that, that's you know like punk rock was like that 
Yeah, the other the other hot spot that wasn't the rainbow parking lot, which was where all the everybody. I just have let's just describe it for people the rainbow parking lot because it the rainbow parking lot like in later like the rainbow has become sort of an icon of well a huge icon of rock and roll but for a while it was only associated with metal but uh, every punk would go there all the time because that was the designated drug buying country it was it was like what's that place in the middle of denmark christiania in, in Copenhagen? yeah well that's what the rainbow parking lot was like yeah and it's it between the rainbow barn grill and the roxy you know the stage door for the roxy and you'd go there to see and be seen because you'd see rock stars there and and if you were new to it you had no idea that the reason people were gathering in the parking lot was to you know score something and, really um, that's where um that's where that's how stan lee from the dickies got um got iggy uh, got iggy's jacket that wild thing jacket he's wearing on raw power like that was in either a quaalude deal or some kind of a pill deal um in the rainbow parking lot that's that that's not the rainbow parking lot's only um you know, most famous transaction, but a lot of people know about it. God only knows what else happened in the rainbow parking lot. What happened there doesn't stay there, but most of the people that were there don't remember what happened. So, right. They, they need, they need witnesses. Yeah. And, and now like even the, even if, if we were in the witness protection program in those days, it would, you know, the statute of that limitation would have been null by now. Anyway, that's how long ago this is. Completely, like, you lived that long? You're going to have to tell now. <laughs> but so when, we, so when we were doing lobotomy, we would sometimes report on the rainbow parking lot, but mostly our hangout for, for our journalism, for our fanzine journalism was at the Tropicana. Describe the Tropicana to everybody, Teresa, please. Oh, well, it was a two-level motel, uh, you know, mid, mid-century kind of situation. Um, Wasn't it built by Sandy Koufax? Sandy Koufax was an owner. And, and if you look online, you'll be able to find old postcards because it used to say Sandy Koufax's Tropicana Motor Inn. And um, it's located, I stayed there. Remember the last time I was in L.A.? Well, it was went down in 87, but now there's a Ramada Inn. A Ramada Inn. Where I, I stayed at the site of where it was, and it continues to freak me out. Like, you know, what's what's happened to it. Um, but it was on Sunset, I'm mean, on Santa Monica Boulevard, like right in the peak of, you know, like the gay boy stroll. Yeah, boys and then, and there was a dike bar, the Palms, across the street from it. And Jim Morrison used to pass out at the Tropicana and go to the Palms a lot. Um, also, there, Duke's, the coffee shop, used to be open all night long. And it was there. Now it's located next to the whiskey. They moved. Actually, it's not there anymore. It's not? Well, I don't know. I can't keep track of what's not there because of COVID or what hasn't been there for a while. I just, I see things the way I want. No. I know. I know. I, I'm with you there. And I still think of, you know, Ben Franks as Ben Franks, even though it's on its like fifth thing since it was Ben Franks. Yeah, me too. But, but um, so yeah, that's the Tropicana. It's just a mid-century, two-level stucco motel. Um, with a swimming pool that was painted black. 
and and we all came to the conclusion that we all called it the black lagoon but we we decided and this is probably true though because it wasn't always black and at one time like they just painted it black they drained it and painted it black like within 24 or 48 hours and we figured it was because there was so much aluminum lawn furniture winding up in the pool and there was always like rust marks on it we figured that was why but then it got really dangerous to dive into it from the balconies or even from like the pool level because you never then you couldn't see the lawn furniture that you had to <laughs> had to avoid when you were skinny dipping the, that pool got i mean that, that pool, pool was, if that pool could tell stories that would be so yeah so to interview anyone or to find out who was in town you'd call the tropicana and marty weatherington may he rest in peace would answer the phone and he would just tell you he would just connect you with their room or tell you where they went oh they went to the laundromat or they're in dukes or you know they've gone the sound check at the whiskey yeah he would just give you the whole everything we used, all to, just, we used to just call marty and say who's in town and he would who's tell coming? us <laughs> who's coming yeah, who's coming? Oh, next next month we have nine nine nine, and and the Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. He'd be like, I can't stand it though, because they always pass out in the rooms, and it's, <laughs> and it's a mess. But the Tropicana also used to have shorts. Yes, you remember the shorts? Tell everyone what the shorts were. Oh well, there were rooms for you know working girls <laughs> and boys and boys, right? Yeah, especially there. Uh, you know, rent by the hour. And we used to, we, if anyone wanted to have a party and not get evicted from their own place, even though that was really difficult and we were always having parties, um, we would just all pull together to get this $16 a night it cost <laughs> um, and get a room at the Tropicana. And then, you know, it was a really safe bet that anyone who was already living there or staying there, because Tom Waits lived there and um so did chucky weiss who wrote chucky's in love and oh, who, who was the subject there. of chucky's in love yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i mean you know if he listens to you he will write in and tell tell you what what you got wrong who will chucky? i remember yeah i remember I posted, Hi, I posted something on punk turns 30 with some pictures about dukes and then he wrote back and goes no it was like this you got that part wrong I was really impressed that he remembered. Oh yeah, he remembers lots of stuff. He's he's kind of my neighbor right now. Ah, very good. <laughs> Once again, no. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I know. Remember on Tom Waits, he had that old '55 Chevy parked in the back. Yeah, um, and it, the windows were broken, and the doors were always unlocked. And you and Kevin Kylie from the Mumps would just go sit in there and talk and do whatever it was that you did together. I remember he took a bunch of pictures of you two in there and Tom saw them and I just remember like what were you doing in my car <laughs> like well you know the windows are broken and it was unlocked <laughs> um, let's talk about the cramps photo session oh no See, the that's the one where the where Lux called you remember yeah. that I don't Lux, remember calling. Lux called you out of the blue Saying, Christian Hoffman told me to call you as soon as I got to town. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and and then um, we spent, you know, like the entire 10 days they were in town with them. 
and we decided to do some pictures you know for them to you know all all of them to eventually be a lobotomate of the month and yeah that was our pinup in the in the fanzine <laughs> the lobotomate of the month and do a big feature on them and and i brought these lights they're you know working lights yes now everyone who has a shop in their garage has used this kind of lamp and it hangs up and it's fine but i set it on the bedspread took a bunch of really great pictures with Lux's props, skulls and crystal balls and whatnot. And the bedspread caught on fire. <laughs> that was so crazy. Did they I think Ivy was really disturbed and Nick just took it all in stride. And I think Lux just put it out. Like, maybe he <laughs> not, fell on it. Not you know? that anyone would have noticed there, but that all the rooms there look like a cross between like someone's grandma and James Brown decorated it. There was like marbleized mirrors and ceiling mirrors and like shag carpeting and bedspreads from like the 50s. Flocked bordello wallpaper. Right now. Okay, let's take a break. We got, we want to play some songs the Lord taught us from the ground. Describe some of the memorable Tropicana parties you remember. I remember going to a, a party in uh, Joseph Fleury's bungalow, Joseph, the manager of the Mumps, and everybody was there. I mean, like all the Mumps were there, all the Dickies were there, and the Quick. Miss um, Murphy from the GTOs was there. I remember that because at that party, her kid Lucky um shoved it um he shoved like eight jelly donuts up the toilet and then he, he and then he locked himself in the bathroom and the doorknob fell off so he stuffed it in after the after the jelly donuts <laughs> and then it, and then he tried to flush it to get rid of it and it started flooding which was not an unusual thing for the <laughs> no i know that they had some pretty weird plumbing going on there well it was at that party that I met Brendan Burke, who works at Chrysalis. And they were just beginning to uh, talk about doing some promotion for Generation X. And the minute he introduced himself and said, you know, and I work at Chrysalis, and it's like, do you talk to Billy Idol? Oh yeah, that's how that <laughs> Do you talk to Billy Idol? And that that's the whole thing that started it. I mean, he gave us like carte blanche to Billy. Yeah, he totally did. And then also I had I had sent a, a package to um I made Generation X t-shirts like out of spray paint and you know, like a bunch of other stuff because I didn't know how to silk screen. And and I sent 
lobotomies and a package of that to Billy Idol. And then we were on Rodney on the rock, Teresa and I were there because Rodney told us to come down and um, because Billy Idol was going to be on the show. And then um, he said, um, Rodney was like, yeah, he's, he's calling in on Chrysalis's line. So I'll just tell him someone wants to talk to him when we're done with the interview. And then you can go in the other room and talk to him. And so the first thing he said was, oh, this is pleasant. And then he's like, I got your package. And we started talking. And then he came to do Chrysalis stuff pretty shortly after. Right. That was, I mean, that was just fantastic. And I, I remember I, I said something to Brendan, like, you know, I do have a brand new car and I could drive him around. And Brendan was pretty relieved, like, oh, like I could get a couple of hours of work done if I'd let Billy go hang out with you guys. So we did have him for a couple of days without any supervision. I that, remember that. That was fun. That for, okay, so, so this is a story that um, I, I can't remember if I, I might have told this on some other people's podcasts. I don't even remember, but um, the first night that um, Teresa was known as the designated driver of punk rock because she actually had a car that was like running. It wasn't like Tom Waits' car. <laughs> she had this little Honda. And um, so there was this um, bitchy girl named Leslie who I, I would, I just called her pig woman, but she, she liked Billy Idol, but Billy Idol at that point, <laughs> hi Billy, was mine and Teresa's property. <laughs> um, and so um, we, uh, we were driving around and we were going to go and take him up to like what's now, um, you know, Runyon Canyon is known as a fitness place. But in those days, everyone in Hollywood called it the ruins because there was like the ruins of an old um, mansion up there, you know. And, and a swimming pool that looked like it came straight out of, um, what movie was that with the Edie Sedgwick where she was living in the pool? Oh, right. Um, I forgot, we're old, you guys. But anyhow, um, I, I wanna say Hollywood Babylon, but that's just, no. Chow, Man Chow Manhattan. That yeah, was Chow Manhattan. Chow Manhattan. Um, but anyhow, so so we, we went to um, this little market that was near Runyon Canyon, you know, and, um, we, me and Teresa and Billy exited the car and then this chick Leslie showed up and she was tailing us around the supermarket and she was looking at me going with a, with a fake English accent and she was dressed like all, you know, like Carnaby Street mod in punk rock times. And she, and she was like, Pleasant, why don't you go and get some orange juice um, while, while Billy and I get the vodka? And I was like, I drink my vodka straight. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then she kept asking me and I said I have to go for a minute and remember I let the air out of her tires <laughs> I remember we also got a gotcha with her um you know asking getting details about some London neighborhoods from Billy and then asking her about it and then asking her you know what she thought of the last outfit that Kathy McGowan wore and oh yeah not what we were talking about and and then the next day after well we went up to the we went up to the ruins and got really drunk and that's like a whole other story but the next day was tomato from the screamers birthday party and everybody in the la punk scene was going there it was at waddles park and um like she showed up there and you and i were there and again everyone in the punk scene and um i was already day drinking and on some some kind of pill and um, 
I decided I was going to light just a little section of her hair on fire. And um, and then Je- Joan Jett was behind me just going, is that the bitch? Is that the fucking bitch? Les, I got your back. I got your fucking back. Like that. And so everyone's like, do it. And some people were like, don't do it. And so I just, I lit her hair on fire, but a lot more of it went up than I thought it was going to, probably from fresh peroxide. <laughs> at two in the afternoon and then there was almost a rumble but no one would fight Joan Jett (laughs) you know and Joan was just the best ally for our Billy Idol obsession because she let us throw the the pre-lobotomy night party at her apartment across the street from the whiskey so Um, yeah we were having a benefit for lobotomy at the whiskey where Teresa and I both worked in various capacities and Joan lived in right across the street from the whiskey and in an apartment that the whiskey had rented out for their go-go girls to live in, in the sixties. But so um, who was playing that night? We were having a lobotomy benefit. Was this X? I think it was um, X and the alley cats and the flesh eaters. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right, it was. And so that's who was on the bill and um, Billy Idol was gonna be the guest of honor and he was coming there. but. As, as we always did, we started drinking at Jones right across the street. And um, why don't you tell what happens or, uh, or I'll start it and we can fill in the blanks. <laughs> yeah, so before we start the story, let's listen to a little bit of Generation X. Now, this story is like really psychotic. Okay, so um, Michelle Myers was the booker at the Whiskey and she was um, Miss Pamela from the GTO's best friend and she knew everybody in town. She was like, she was like, she was the real mayor of Sunset Strip. I gotta tell you, she could just get get on the phone and like call anybody at any record company, call like, you know, someone like Led Zeppelin when they were on tour to talk to people. Um, you know, her, her and Pamela DeBar were best friends and they had the scoops on everybody. <laughs> but so, um, so she was booking the whiskey and she let us two insane teenagers put on these benefits for our, our fanzine with people that, you know, are now like icons of the punk scene, but then they were just our friends. So this, on this night with um, X, the alley cats and the flesh eaters playing, we started early and, we didn't realize, like we, we went to Jones like right after Soundcheck and then we kind of lost track of time and the door to Jones was wide open. I don't mean unlocked, I mean wide open, you know, with Sunset Strip like 10 feet up the street from from her. And um, the the table was, this is where, this is where Teresa's famous picture comes from that you've probably seen with like Joan and Billy Idol and me and the germs. This was, this was on that night. 
Um, anyhow, so it was strewn with alcohol and we were all underage and there was like evidence of like, um, you know, marijuana being smoked and all of this. And we were all in the back room and um, a friend of ours who shall remain nameless was shackled to the bed, spread eagled. And there was all these like whips that like, like I don't even remember if they were Jones or if some of them were mine because Helen Killer bought me a, a bunch of that. But we were all like whipping this girl and she, she was a willing, you know, she, she was willing in it. But <laughs> Michelle Myers runs across the street from the whiskey and charges into Joan's house and flings open the bedroom door. And Billy was standing there with like a bottle of vodka, Jack Daniels in one hand and he had a nine tails raised up in the other with this girl spread eagled on the bed and the rest of us all holding drinks or, or like, you know, not even being able to stand up. <laughs> and she grabs Billy and she's like, you, guest of honor. She grabbed him by the ear like a teacher and the little rascals. And she's like, get your ass to the whiskey. And she's like, you, producers of the show, get your fucking ass to the whiskey. The show's running late. And when she grabbed Billy, he was like, yes, madam. Yes, madam. Yes, madam. <laughs> I mean, Michelle could get Kim Fowley to do that too, you know? I remember so many times after I moved out of the lobotomy apartment, I moved into an apartment behind the whiskey, um, basically across the street diagonally from Joan. Um, whenever Kim, who was still kind of tangentially involved with the runaways and with Joan, was looking for her and she wasn't at her apartment, he'd just stroll up to mine and kind of always open the door without knocking, looking for her or devil worship. Where's devil worship here? And yeah, um, devil worship was our friend Lisa Curlin. And he used to call me dirty pussy. <laughs> he just missed yeah, out mean, on us. He he was um yeah, he was a party crasher, but I just remember one time saying, you know, Kim, there's all my sister was living with me in that apartment, and she went to the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. And so all of her friends were actors or wannabe actors. And there was one there who shall remain nameless, but he's an Oscar winner now. And um, why does he have to remain nameless? Just let's say it was allegedly someone. Oh, it was a you know a, a, allegedly uh, you know this era's uh, you know Gary Cooper. Okay, that means nothing to me. But go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, you know, Madonna wasn't fond of this guy, and it's not Warren Beatty. Oh. <laughs> it was somebody from that movie that Madonna made fun of. Okay. Because he thought her concert was neato. <laughs> oh, my God. So now everyone's going to go watch Truth or Dare. But uh, anyway, I think he was, you know, just like trying to hit on Joan, and she was obviously not having it. She was in her own world. And Kim Fowley came up there looking for Joan. And I wanted to get rid of this actor. And I just said, Kim Fowley, if you bounce this party for me, you will be welcome anytime unannounced. And he bounced that party so hard that I felt like I wanted to leave my own apartment. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, because for people who don't know Kim, he's like six foot five and maybe 150 pounds. 
You know, he just, always wore a red leather jacket, so you could always see him in the crowd at any club you walked in. Yeah, from like miles around, and he had, you know, liked to do this Frankenstein thing with his head. You know, like just have a squared off haircut, and and maybe a Ziggy Stardust, uh, you know, lightning bolt on his head or on his forehead. He, you know, stood out already because of his size, but then red leather and face paint. But yes, he did bounce that party so hard. And Joan managed actually to escape detection from him by going out my bedroom window. <laughs> I always moved into these places that had floor to ceiling windows. And she, you know, left, you know, just went out the window and while well, he was bouncing unwanted actor studio wannabes <laughs> and I know you know when we teach at UCLA and people just stand, sit there with their mouths agape because we're like dropping names of you know known commodities it was like oh yeah you guys we teach we've taught punk rock courses at UCLA for like three years um <laughs> like they're like special punk rock workshops like we taught people how to make um fanzines like hard copy fanzines and um, Teresa and I teach, you know, punk history, but mostly it's just stories like this, but we have to tone it down a little bit because we're in an institute of higher education. <laughs> I know, but I think, and I think a lot of the, you know, I see a lot of the people who um, respond to your stories on social media, like, you know, like it with a sense of wonder, but I mean, it was decades ago and I'll, a lot of the people that we're talking about, I mean, they were our friends because we were early supporters. We were all in this kind of new counterculture together as a support. Yeah, they were early artists too. They were yeah. like, you know, within a, a, in some cases, within a less than a year of a band forming. Yeah. You know, got signed or just were trying to tour. Yeah, I mean, like X, you know, I mean, they were just like John Doe and Xene were just like these poets that we knew. And then they formed this amazing band that's been around for decades that, I mean, and they're legendary and, and they both have a career that goes outside of punk rock, you know? Yeah, I mean, same with the Go-Go's. No one in the Go-Go's knew how to play anything. No one in the Germs knew how to play anything. That's, that, that's how Teresa and I, like, think it's so crazy trying to explain punk rock to people because we have to always tell, like, whether we're teaching or not teaching, there was no social media there was no email. There was no cell phones. There was no answering machines. <laughs> no, man, everything was, there was no call waiting, you know? Yeah, I mean, none of that. it was all just boiled down to hardcore determinism. Anyway, um, we are going to play a song from the Sex Pistols because, boy, do we have stories to tell about that. <laughs>
we're back with stories of the Antichrist. Ah. <laughs> so, uh, as I was saying before, Teresa was the punk rock's designated driver on the West Coast because she had a car. And a so, license and insurance. Yeah, and a license and no tickets. When, um, when the Sex Pistols were, were coming on tour to America, there was a migration and someone else that had a car. I think it might've been in T Terry Graham's car. It was somebody's VW. A whole bunch of people went out to Texas, like um, Helen Killer and Trudy and Alice Bag. And I think Trixie went. Um, they went to the, the Pistols gigs in, um, in Texas. Like Helen was the one that punched Sid in the nose in those famous pictures. <laughs> but um, for those of us that couldn't make it to... Uh, to Texas, there was a giant like migration from LA up to San Francisco to see the Sex Pistols at at um, Winterland, and the and um, that was actually that was right when um, we first started lobotomy because that was on like that was on was it January? It was 14th? January seventy eight. Yeah, yeah. The tickets to that were three dollars, you guys. Three dollars. Three fifty when you added in the service charge. That's true, but I still have the tickets though. <laughs> yeah, and so it would be more than my COVID unemployment. No. <laughs> and right. So the Avengers were one of the opening bands, and so were the nuns, like people that we knew. Yeah. And, and also, this is another acid story. Kid, you weren't on acid, but Kid Congo and I took a ton of acid, and we just like, Somehow we saw the line going around the block and we just kind of looked at it and nodded and we weren't even trying to sneak in. We just walked up to the head of it and just walked through the doors and nobody stopped us. <laughs> well, I, it was raining, if you remember, and I had my camera underneath my top. And, and back then, my favorite top to wear was this midi sailor girl top, just like the girl in the inside of the New York Dolls album cover. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the one with the bend over girl. Which um, was drawn by Christian Hoffman from the Monks. That's right. And so I just, I had my camera in there and, you know, it looked like a baby bump. And I just went up to the head of the line and I just said, I just patted it and I go, I really have to pee. And they just let me in. <laughs> <laughs> that would never happen now. None, actually, none of this would never happen now. So who was in the car with us going up there and... Well, I, I think the question all is the terms people were staying at, at Sam Wong's and we were staying Who at the wasn't? house. Yeah. Crowned um, into a Honda. Yeah. Right. So us was Lorna with us? I can't remember. Or Kid Kid Congo was with us. Yeah. Because there's always you and me and Kid in the car. I remember on the way back we hijacked Rory Johnston and we made him tell us how he lost his virginity oh yeah he was the sex pistols um american manager even though he was from the uk um with toby mamus right anyway, um that tell some of the backstage stories of that night hoity well they had a a big popcorn machine like an old-time movie theater popcorn machine and the oil had spilled out of it and so the floor in the sort of the main room before you went off into the little personal dressing rooms was slick and i mean people were just falling down on their ass and i remember once i saw johnny rotten and i thought 
should I take his picture? And then I saw that he was like flying forward and it was like, no, I can't, I have to catch him. And he bumped into me and he, he apologized profusely and was like, that's okay, man. I mean, that was just like the funniest thing I remember. And uh, I remember also being back there with Penelope and um, Penelope Houston from the, from the Avengers and seeing someone, and I can't remember, but just some, you know, really handsome rock and roll type person thinking, are we going to go flirt with them? No, let's go try to talk to Sid Vicious. <laughs> you know, it was like one of those backwards things, you know. And you know that um, Jane, Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's, Jane was, um, she was, she was the drug, the drug chauffeur driving Sid around looking for heroin up there. And Helen, Helen Killer was with him the whole time. That's insane. I think that's why we thought we could talk to Sid because Helen was always there. And it's like, well, we know her. <laughs> well, also like we weren't sure if he could talk so many times either. <laughs> me and kid used to see him in new york all the time like when we were staying in new york like just um like a few months before yeah yeah was... i remember um going to see Steve and cynthia in new york and um sid followed them around like he was a puppy you know i mean the thing about sid that i think a lot of people don't know is that he was like a huge fan of punk rock you know he was like the world's biggest Sex Pistols fan before he joined the Sex Pistols. Well, he was he was like eighteen or nineteen. Huh? Yeah, yeah, he was really really young, and he was he was really he was like a puppy, especially with Nancy Sponge. <laughs> she had him on a short leash. I know, huh? She went she she went she could get really vicious. <laughs> no pun no, she really. She did what any anthropologist would call mate guarding. Yeah. <laughs> yes, she did mate guarding. So um, that, yeah, so that was January 78. And like, they broke up right after the show. And Johnny Rotten and Steve Jones were in LA. Because I remember you and I seeing them at a mumps show at the Whiskey right afterwards like didn't he didn't johnny rotten actually get on stage with the mumps at yeah. some point yeah yeah he did and, and sid vicious did too in new york but that was in new york at max's kansas city um that was i think this was during the time when um steve jones kept trying to pick up on joan and everyone um at jones house had to pee in a bucket oh. um, because they were gonna do a um Joan and Lisa were gonna do like one of those cartoon tricks, like a Wiley e. Coyote trick. Yes, yeah. Bucket up on a door with like a, a, you know, like a rope to pull it from a different spot. So when Steve had to go to the bathroom to say he would, and um, Kent Smythe, the Runaways roadie, like um, helped them rig it. And seriously, whenever anyone had to go to the bathroom for ages, they had to pee in this bucket. <laughs> <laughs> We always used to tease Steve Jones, uh, Steve, Steve Jones. Um, I just have, it's so weird to say Steve Jones because I'm so used to calling him Jonesy because of his radio yeah. show. But do you remember he used to wear that red hunting jacket like the Kinks wore? And when I used to call him Captain Kangaroo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
not to his face. <laughs> no, I know. Refer to him as Captain Kangaroo. And I remember look like it too. You know, his hair. Yeah. Was... <laughs> I know. Hi, and he... Steve. Hi, Steve. He was such a great fixture, though, around LA. Yeah. You know, after, long after the pistols broke up. And oh, it was always good to still is. Yeah. Yeah. Like, hey, that guy's in the sex system. Oh I God. think that um, with because we have uh, probably about seven or eight minutes to tell people about the graveyard. Okay, let's tell people about the graveyard, and then on that note, we are we are going to um, we, we are gonna it's gonna be curtains for this podcast. <laughs> yes, well, so you know, if you follow Pleasant, you know that the Hollywood Forever Cemetery is her favorite place to hang out. But back in 1978, it was really scuzzy. Like the gates didn't really work. They didn't. And they the, never locked the, the the front gates of the cemetery. It was owned by different people. Right, and um, a lot of the uh, you know graves were not really well kept up. But it was a really good place to go hang out with your friends or go on a date, depending on you know like the kind of people you hung out with. And so on Easter Sunday. Pleasant and Kid and I went there to, and you know, commune Kid, with Kid Congo and Kevin Kiley from the Mumps too. Right, right. right. And uh, Paul Rutner, who was the Mumps drummer, was staying at the lobotomy apartment, and he declined our invitation to join us at the cemetery. And so we went to the cemetery and we started picking Easter lilies from people's graves because you know Easter was over and we liked fresh flowers. And then we heard some Kid noises. And I were on acid. Kid and I were on acid. <laughs> and I we heard we talked some... about this on on our podcast, but I mean, on the podcast I did with him. But now you you tell your your impression of this. Oh, well, so it it turns out that you know they were some low riders, and they were not happy with us, quote unquote, desecrating you know their their graves, and they chased us through the cemetery and through the gates, you know, with their Red pipes, crowbar from their, you know, jackhammer thing for to raise their spare tire. I mean, they had they had some heavy metal with them, and we kind of barely got out of the gates of the cemetery and barely got into my little Honda. Barely got the doors closed, and just started tearing out on Melrose, and they were in hot pursuit, and. Um, they had, they had an Impala. I remember they had. Yes, really they had an Impala, Impala, which you know is like the size of an ocean liner, so they couldn't make any turns. And I was turning against red lights and doing donuts in the street, going as fast as I could. And my back window, you know, they were wing windows back then. They didn't roll down; they pushed out. And you and Kevin are um, just you're playing with the, you know, like. Being like Catherine Hepburn, oh, with the calla lilies. And, and you started screaming. And then you started throwing the flowers out, pushing the flowers out the wing window. I was, I was handing them to Kevin because um, my window went, wouldn't work or it was locked or something. But it was because uh, there were slugs on the lilies. There were slugs. And I fucking hate slugs. Like, I didn't know that they were giant slugs and they were right in my face. The bouquet was so big. And yeah, so there I was going probably 70 miles an hour on Melrose, running red lights. Trying to attract the cops just so they could To stop. attract the cops. And we didn't. And, but we made it home to the famous lobotomy apartment on 
La Brea and Franklin to be greeted by Paul, who um, ordinarily would have been really incredulous, except that he said, well, you guys look like you've seen a ghost. <laughs> that, was, that was so crazy, because he had no idea we'd been to the cemetery. I know, and it's just, it, this is like the Rashomon story of punk rock, because there are like four people who experienced it, and um, three of us are still alive, and and everyone's memory of something is just a little bit different, but it's equally as wild. Psychotic. So this this might be a really good time to um to segue into some graveyard music. Oh yeah, let's do some graveyard music. And then Teresa, tell me um tell me if you got anything going on online or anything any upcoming plans for quote, quote, when everything goes back to normal. So all the listeners can hear. Oh, well, I just want to get back to, you know, like doing the war stories with you and, uh, you know, corrupting more teenage students. Maybe we should do a war stories online. War stories was our spoken word um, storytelling show with all of our friends that, you know, like, like everyone that we just talked about who's still alive. Um, we just, stay on stage and tell horrifying stories like more hair raising than this and um maybe we should do one online i think that would be great okay you guys that are listening hold us to this <laughs> <laughs> bother us anyway so i'm going to now outro my fabulous friend punk rock's designated driver photographer doyen of punk turns 30 um, make sure you go to punkturns30.com so you can see Teresa's amazing photos, see her written versions of stories, which may make a lot more sense than this. And um, you'll see all the photos to back it up. <laughs> and um, it was so good to have you, Hoity. It's so much fun to be here. Yay. Okay, you guys, that was the wondrous Teresa Kariakis. And we will see you next time. Mwah! Mwah! The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.